This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes, everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the day... Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, March the 13th, another busy show. I have to speak with Gene Stevens and um, maybe see if he can push this program right through until 2 a.m. because I have so many things to get to tonight. So little time just for some good old friendly small talk. I just don't have time for it, so uh, forgive me. Uh, We will speak with Bill Gibbons a little later in the show. He is um, an explorer, a creation scientist, a cryptozoologist, and his brand-new book, Mokele Mbembe, Mystery Beast of the Congo Basin. Uh, He'll be with us after midnight, and uh, he's had many expeditions to Africa in search of this dinosaur-like creature, and he'll be here to tell us about that. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, one of the preeminent paranormal researchers in the world. She's written over 40 books, many of them major encyclopedic works, and uh, had a great visit with her again down in uh, Arizona at the 20th International UFO Congress. And uh, she has a brand new book out on uh, gin, uh, the gin, not uh, not the bottle, <laughs> although you do find a gin in bottles, I suppose, but uh, uh, we're talking about the gin that is spelled D-J-I-N-N. These are... Uh, I think in the Muslim uh, culture, the Arabic culture, they talk about the jinn. And this is where we get the idea of genies from. Uh, These are rather mischievous, somewhat nefarious uh, spiritual entities. Uh, And she encountered one down in Appalachia, in uh, West Virginia, uh, which is a hotbed of paranormal activity. Who knew? But uh, this whole region... um, sort of bordered by the Ohio River and, uh, anyway, West Virginia, southern Pennsylvania, that whole area we know as Appalachia, is uh, some sort of a, she calls it a portal. 
And uh, she'll be here to tell us about her experiences with the Jin on uh, this particular tract of land she's dubbed the farm. And uh, they had uh, encounters with shadow people, ghosts, uh, wood imps, not the wood nymphs from Greek, Greek mythology, but um, just, you. I mean, it's just a catch-all grab bag of paranormal uh, activity down there, and she'll be here. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Also want to mention the, uh, the TV show. Uh, this past Friday, I believe we aired episodes, my gosh, 7 and 8. Hope you got a chance to catch it. 11 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV. Check your local listings, but uh, if you're on the Bell dish, it's uh, channel 261. I think Shaw Direct is 264. And here in the greater Toronto area, if you're on Rogers, it's channel 60. So uh, two more episodes coming your way next Friday. And uh, let's see, what do we have left to, to air? Uh, there'll be an episode on time travel, which was one of my favorites. And uh, also the uh, the New World Order, the Central Banking Conspiracy, both of those episodes featuring the great Jim Mars. And also uh, there'll be an episode on uh, vampires. Well, we, uh, we spoke or I spoke with a, uh, a, a, a man who claims to be a vampire hunter. You'll have to decide for yourself after listening, but that's, that's, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. The Conspiracy Show on Vision TV, Friday nights at 11. And um, please mark this down because uh, we finally have our website up for the TV show. It's called, coincidentally, www.theconspiracyshow.com. Very simple to remember, just like the name of the show, theconspiracyshow.com. Please check it out. It's, it's a work in progress. Uh, but as always here on the radio show, you can... Um, you can get all your information for the radio program at richardserrett.com. And eventually we'll hook up those two websites so it'll all be under one banner, theconspiracyshow.com. All right, listen, I got an email from a gentleman by the name of Mark Owen who sends me from time to time uh, some of his latest work, his research, his writings. And uh, uh, this one was just recently published in conspiracyarchive.com. And it's entitled, What You Didn't Know About John Wilkes Booth and Jesse James. And, of course, in uh, just about one month's time uh, will be the anniversary of the assassination of the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, the first president to be successfully uh, assassinated. And uh, that happened, of course, April 14th, 1865, just about five days after the uh, uh, the Confederate uh, army had surrendered uh, at Ford's Theater, of course. Link, Mary Lincoln Todd uh, and the president were in the uh, president's booth at Fort Theater watching My American Cousin and well-known actor John Wilkes Booth uh, shoots the president at close range in the head from behind. And he was, of course, taken across the street to the Peterson house where he died in the, um, around 7 in the morning the next day, surrounded by physicians and, uh, and others. Uh, and then we assumed that uh, John Wilkes Booth was cornered uh, at um, uh, Garrett's Tobacco Barn, where he was basically uh, taken out and uh, dispatched with. Uh, however, according to my next guest, that's not the way it played out. And we are about to learn the secret history of Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth. We welcome to the program, The Conspiracy Show, freelance writer, Mark Owen. Mark, welcome. How are you? Hi, Richard. Doing good, thanks. This is a wonderful piece. Now, uh, this, how did you learn about this? This is your research, uh, I'm guessing. Like, how did you put this all together? Well, uh, I first became interested in Lincoln about 25 years ago. I came across a fascinating book called Lincoln Money Martyred. I still read it, still go back to it. I, I believe it's the best single book 
on why Lincoln was killed. Um, written in '35, uh, but um, I didn't really. Uh, I, I knew it could use an essay, a treatment, but I didn't really um, think it, it deserved something immediate until two years ago when I came across all this obscure data on Jesse James and how, according to his diaries, he killed John Wilkes Booth. And of course, which is kind of uh, uh, odd because, of course, uh, we always learned that Jesse James uh, w- was killed, uh, you know. 1882 by Bob Ford. Right? That's right. So, listen, we'll get to all of that interesting backstory, but let's just cut right to the chase because there's so much here. Right. Um, so, as you say, according to your research, uh, Jesse James uh, killed the actor John Wilkes Booth. But it wasn't, of course, in 1865 in Washington. It was where and when? In Eden, Oklahoma, in 1903 at the Grand Avenue Hotel. You see, they were both members in a secret society known as the Knights of the Golden Circle, who's essentially um, a, uh, a very good researcher in the United States named Anton Chaikin in his book Treason in America. He, he pretty much uh, says that they're one and the same with the Knights uh, the um, Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, which is somewhat true because the the Knights drafted a lot of their membership straight out of the um, Masons because the Masons could keep a secret, and they needed people that could keep a secret because it was, what they were doing was trying to foment a second civil war in order to initiate or inaugurate a central bank in the U.S., which didn't result from the first civil war, which is the goal of the Rothschild family since, well... 200 years. Yeah, these big banking families, they were funding both the, 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 the Confederates and they were funding the other side. They wanted to foment war, uh, you know, drive both sides into well, huge debt. And, and, right. uh, and, well, Bismarck knew that. Like, he told everybody in Europe, of course, it wasn't picked up by the American press, that they wanted, you know, two, two essentially weak, um, uh, uh, a divided country. Like, it's, it's the old Roman system of divide and conquer, right? Right. And then when Lincoln, of course, decided to, to print his own uh, d- uh, money, the Treasury Department would print their own money, I guess that sort of, uh, that sealed his fate. He signed his own death warrant. Well, exactly. I mean, he was, he was restoring his uh, uh, state credit back to, the, back to himself, and it was all debt-free money. There was no usury attached to the issue. So, yeah, of course. And plus, he, he was doing all kinds of stuff, too. He, like, but before Lincoln, there was no, for instance, there was no steel industry in the United States. It was, there's nothing. And all the steel was coming from Britain. So what he did was he slapped a 50% tax on British steel. So what do you think that's going to do for his, uh, the, the steel uh, mills in Britain? They're not going to groove on that. Exactly. In other well, words, the uh, the United States wasn't behaving like a colony anymore. They no. were uh, asserting their their presence in the world, and Lincoln was certainly uh, a huge part of that. Uh, so, Mark Owen is uh, with us, freelance writer, and um, we'll uh, tell you how to get a hold of uh, Mark a little bit later, and also uh, draw your attention to his article. What You Didn't Know About John Wilkes Booth and Jesse James, which is uh, on conspiracyarchive.com. Well, listen, we'll take a time out, Mark. When we come back, we'll, we'll, um, we'll head on over to Garrett's Tobacco Bar in 1865 and find out exactly what happened to John Wilkes Booth. Didn't die in 1865, as we've all been told and all learned in school. No. He was killed almost 40 years later by the outlaw Jesse James. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. 
personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Imagine if an actor, let's say, like Matt Damon or, I don't know, uh, George Clooney, a much younger George Clooney, actually shot and killed a president. That's what actually was happening back in 1865, because John Wilkes Booth, he was a, he was a prominent actor. He was a famous actor. And, and the Booth family, they were a famous theatrical a family from Maryland. So imagine uh, the shock when John Wilkes Booth uh, shot President Lincoln in 1865. Uh, and then about a week and a half, almost two weeks later, after fleeing uh, the crime on horseback to Southern Maryland, uh, John Wilkes Booth is uh, surrounded by Union sh uh, soldiers in uh, Garrett's Tobacco Barn, where he himself is shot. Uh, or supposedly, at least that's what we were, we've always been told. But uh, Mark Owen is here to disabuse us of that and uh, tell us much more about the secret history of John Wilkes Booth. Okay, so let's take us, uh, take us back to Garrett's barn uh, that uh, fateful April uh, day in 1865. And uh, what happens next, Mark Owen? Well, that, that wasn't Booth in the barn. That was a guy named James Boyd. He was a Confederate uh, Army officer. He was working as an undercover agent for the War Department, which is to say Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. He was on his nickel. And the plan was, see, Stanton was in on the kidnapping of Lincoln. It, there were, he was never supposed to be mur murdered. He was going to be kidnapped, and they tried eight times. I'm talking about the conspirators that were aiding and abetting Booth. And four of them were hanged, and four were sent to the Dry Tortugas prison off of Florida. But uh, there were many other conspirators. Uh, this was proved uh, by a close reading of Booth's diary. He kept a diary, and he implicated a lot of people in Washington, including uh, Lafayette Baker, the head of the Secret Service, and Edward Stanton, in addition to all the New York financiers. But, um, yeah, so, so Booth, after t trying to kidnap Lincoln eight times, ki uh, trying to kidnap and failing eight times, um, Booth uh, just took things a little above and beyond, and he went and shot him. So, of course, everybody scrambled out of Washington. Everybody knew the plan, although most of the exits were immediately barricaded out of Washington, except one. Everybody knew about the one that wasn't blocked, and that was the old Navy Yard Bridge. That's where Booth ran. And that's where James Boyd and a guy named David Harold, who was in on the kidnap plan, they took off too. Of course, you're going to run. If you hear that the president's been shot when you're going to you're attempting to kidnap him, they they took off too, and they went straight to, to Garrett's tobacco shed. It wasn't really a tobacco. It wasn't really a barn. It was a tobacco shed. Anyway, but yeah, that's the guy who ended up getting shot by Boston Corbett in the Garrett barn. And, and he had a striking resemblance uh, to to John Wilkes Booth, except that he had red hair, not jet black. Right. And he right. had a mustache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also, uh, on, on Booth's trajectory, he ended up at a guy named Samuel Mudd's house. Now, Booth jumping out of the balcony after shooting Lincoln, he, cr he fractured his leg, so it had to be set. And he knew this doctor named Samuel Mudd, and he took off to his house, had it set in a cast, and at that point he shaved off his mustache. But yes, so James Boyd, the guy in the Garrett's barn, yes, you're right, he had red hair. And this was testified to by... Um, Several people, uh, the, the, the detectives following Booth, who they thought was Booth, who was, was in fact Boyd, they, they said, oh, you got the wrong guy. 
this guy's got red hair and a red mustache. And then, of course, when they got him to Washington, um, so many people were coming in to look at the, uh, during the autopsy, saying, this isn't Booth. Uh, in fact, a doctor, John May, who had removed a tumor on Booth's neck three months previously in Washington, was called to, the, uh, to view the corpse, and, and he, he, he just freaked out. He said, this isn't Booth. It bears absolutely no resemblance to Booth. So, but anyway, he was leaned on, and he changed his testimony over time. But so in other words, all of these national detectives, and you point out there were about 26 of them that were on the payroll. Yeah. On the payroll. So in other words, they, they were working for the, uh, the, uh, the London uh, the bankers, the Wall Street bankers, those that had an allegiance to the, uh, the Anglo uh, establishment uh, rather than... Well... Yeah, well, what happened was most of the detectives knew it wasn't Booth. They knew they got the wrong guy, but what happened? Well, they each received a $5,000 payday, more or less, and they had to sign quit claims. After the body was shipped back to Washington, they they had to say, uh, sign. you know, $5,000 could easily buy you a farm then, back then and a house, you know. Sure. But that was a huge payday. Absolutely. So, yeah, these, these guys all signed off on it, every single one of them. And, um, you know, they kept, they kept their mouth shut because, uh, you know, and, uh, but, but the head of the Secret Service, Lafayette Baker, Lafayette Baker he, was, he was named in Booth's diary as a conspirator, you know, so, which, which is no big, um, like, if, if, you, if you read the, a lot of the detail on Baker, it, what's interesting about him, he was running a smuggling ring out of New York City at the same time. This is the head of the Secret Service. And he's running all these detectives and that, but he's also running his own game out of New York City. He's smuggling um, uh, contraband down to the uh, down to the southern states, and he's uh, smuggling back cotton, huge amounts of cotton, and making a killing both ways. Right. 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 So imagine the head of the Secret Service, the man that's charged with defending the president, right. was one of the conspirators. Uh, <laughs> what is that old saying? You know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Well, exactly. And, and, and another guy on the payroll was a guy named John Parker. Now, he was detailed to the White House. He was uh, the guy in charge of... Def- uh, he was the bodyguard for Lincoln the night of the assassination. He was detailed to the White House at the express um, uh, request of Mary Todd Lincoln. She actually wrote a letter saying, I want John Parker detailed to the White House. So she got him, and, uh, and some researchers uh, are of the mind that they were having an affair. Anyway, so this guy was a total reprobate. He was a metropolitan police officer. He was drunk on the job half the time. He was sleeping on park benches. He was written up so many times. He, he was sick, or he didn't show up for work 40 days out of 80 this is the guy she wants to guard her husband. Anyway, that does so. sound very suspicious. Let me just remind uh, uh, listeners to The Conspiracy Show. Mark Owen is with us, and uh, we're discussing the secret history of John Wilkes Booth, and we're just learning that he did not die in Garrett's barn in 1865, uh, but rather was killed by none other than Jesse Woodson James in the Grand Avenue Hotel in Eden, Oklahoma, in 1903, no less. So... Uh, Booth is spirited away by his uh, his brothers in the uh, the Knights of the Golden Circle to Texas. Is that correct? Yeah, the, he was he was relayed down there pretty quickly. Uh, they they didn't just run him down in one swoop. It was it was it was a bunch of his brother Lodge brothers were in on it. Now this is this is testified to by his own granddaughter, Booth's own granddaughter, Isola Forrester, in 1937. She wrote a book called This One Mad Act. 
and she she says quite plainly that um, he never died in the uh, in the barn, and, he, and his night the Knights of the Golden Circle escorted him straight down into Texas. All right, and listen. Then all of the Southern press at the time, they all said it too. They uh, banner headlines down in Richmond and everywhere else going, John Wilkes Booth escaped. We we know he's not dead. All right, and uh, we'll find out when we come back. Uh, how he lived down there as John St. Helen operating a distillery in Glen Rose, Texas, before he uh, ran afoul of revenue agents over whiskey taxes. Back with Mark Owen, independent researcher, writer, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're familiar with my uh, radio feature that runs here on AM 740, Thursday, Fridays, or sorry, Friday, Saturday, Sunday uh, nights at 730, I, uh, I've put a collection of uh, those uh, together. It's called Strange Planet with Richard Serrett, and I've just released my second volume of Strange Planet features on uh, CD. I think there's something like 18 or 20 tracks, and it's available down at uh, Conspiracy Culture for sale at uh, 1696 Queen Street West. Uh, go in and say hello to Patrick and Kadena, good friends of the show. And uh, again, that's Conspiracy Culture. Strange Planet Volume 2. They may even have a few copies of Volume 1 kicking around. That's, uh, uh, again, my uh, radio feature that runs here uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday evenings at 7.30. Right now, kudos to Mark Owen for this wonderful uh, uh, essay on um, what you didn't know about John Wilkes Booth and Jesse James. Okay, so, uh, just to recap very quickly, he's uh, taken down to uh, Texas by his um, uh, brothers in the uh, Knights of the Golden Circle, and uh, living down in Glen Rose under the name of John St. Helen, and by 1872, seven years after he's, he killed uh, Lincoln, he's down there operating this distillery, and then he runs afoul of the law, Mark. A couple of saloons, too. He was operating between Granbury and Glen Rose, two, two little small towns near Fort Worth. Um, so, yeah, and also, Jesse James was the comptroller in charge of all bullion and cash and for the night. He was the treasurer, and in that capacity, he was paying Booth a stipend of 3500 a year. And all Booth had to do was keep his mouth shut, which he couldn't do because he was an actor. He, you know, he, he was very grandiose. He was very grandiose and proud and vain too. He's a very vain person, and um, and also he was he was a, well. He liked to drink a lot, and, and he liked um, a little bit of the opium as well. I understand. Yeah, he he was addicted to opium pills. Now back then, that was uh, it was over the counter. It was it was very cheap too. So yeah, he he was combining the the morphine or the opium and morphine pills and uh so in other words mark he's down there in glenrose operating this distillery meanwhile you know after he, he he gets into the cups he starts bragging to people hey i'm the guy that killed lincoln is that is that what he's doing he did it often when he was drunk and he was warned many times because because uh, texas was loaded with outlaws loaded with outlaws it was loaded with freemasons and particularly knights so words getting back to the Knights of the Golden Circle. Oh, uh, they, they personally told them, many of them, not just Jesse. You've got to shut up and stop doing it. But um, they, they, they cut him some slack. Like, he was their Berlage brother. He took the, the oaths, right? So, um, 
And there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of fallout down there. And, and, and he continued to act, too, by the way, in plays. But he stuck to the south, of course, like Shreveport and, and uh, you know, in and around Texas and that. So he was, he was maintaining, a, he was getting a, a supplementing his income that way, too. Okay, so let's, let's uh, just because we're tight for time here, uh, let's move ahead. Well, we're going to move ahead and then rewind. Okay. Jesse James, the outlaw Jesse James. Yes. Um, now, we always learned that he died at the hands of Bob Ford back in 1882. Right. Um, so what's the story there? Well, yeah, again, there's two things, or well, there's many things throwing historians. One is that they, they, they don't want to dig enough, in my opinion. They, they dig a little bit, and, and they regurgitate whatever the, the uh, average uh, uh, classic treatment is on a particular theme. So... But if you dig deep enough, what you find is that Jesse had a, a cousin also named Jesse. I'm talking about Jesse Woodson James had a cousin named Jesse Alec, Jesse Robert James, who all who had a brother weirdly enough named Frank Alexander James. So you had two Jesses and two Franks. They were all four, in, and they were cousins, and they were all four in the Knights of the Golden Circle, and they were all four robbers, bank robbers. Um, they were pulling heists. Train robberies, uh, stealing army payrolls—they were gangsters essentially. So that's that's another confusing thing. But getting back to Jesse Woodson, so what's happening with him is that he's getting all this heat coming down on him from Pinkerton's, Alan Pinkerton's agents. Uh, all these bounty hunters are after him. All these gunslingers—what they want to make a name for themselves. So it, it's not a—it's it's kind of—he's getting some heat, a lot of heat, and then. Um, one of the guys in his his, uh, his band of brothers there, a guy named uh, Charlie Bigelow, Jesse uh, figured that he was ratting him out to Alan Pinkerton. So that he started, he booted him out of the gang, and then Charlie Bigelow went on his own and started robbing banks and trains and uh, and blaming it on Jesse. He claimed that he was Jesse James. So Jen, Jesse went gunning for him, shot Charlie Bigelow, brought him back to his farm, and he told his good friend Bob Ford, look, you go into town, tell the sheriff you just killed Jesse James, which he did. Ford went into town. The, the sheriff arrested Ford and threw him in jail immediately, then went out to the farm. And everybody at the farm, Jesse made them all swear that, yes, Bob shot Jesse James. That's him laying there. So it took a few days, but they had this mock funeral, and uh, uh, Jesse James was declared, declared officially dead. And then uh, Bob Ford was uh, charged with murder and sentenced to hang. So, so now this is this is great because for for uh, for James and really uh, for the uh, the uh, Knights of the Golden Circle because now he's got the ultimate cover. Yeah. So, anyways, Thomas Crittenden, who was the governor of Missouri at the time, which is where this all took place, he steps in and pardons immediately pardons Bob Ford. Interesting. So he gives him a, a get out of jail free card. And, and also, Ford and Ford was uh, good friends with Jesse James. They, they in fact, went into business ventures spanning decades after that. And so, as you point out, Mark, uh, sorry, to, I just want to move things along here, but yeah. as you point out, uh, Jesse James would then go on to live until the 1950s and died at 107. Yeah, he, he, was, he was pretty old. He, he died under the name J. Frank Dalton. He died in Granbury, Texas. He came out of the closet, so to speak, in, in Lawton, Oklahoma. It, it was blasted all over the press. Thousands and thousands of people showed up to look to see him. 
Okay, so so uh, John Wilkes Booth uh, doesn't stop uh, uh, talking and, and boasting about having killed uh, uh, Lincoln. Uh, eventually, he moves up, I guess, to Oklahoma. Well, he and- actually took off. Finally, he, he he went too far at one point. He got what happened was he was in his cups down in Granbury, and he was taking the pills and he overdosed. So he thought he was dying. I guess he was hallucinating or something. But he called his uh, lawyer. He had a lawyer. He was running. He was running into uh, disputes with revenue agents over whiskey taxes. Uh, that had to do with his distillery down there. And he, he had hired a lawyer at one point, a guy named Finnis Bates, a Memphis lawyer who was, happened to be working in Texas at the time. Grandfather of the actress Catherine Bates. Yeah, the Hollywood actress. She's in Harry's Law right now. But yeah, that, that was her grandfather, Finnis Bates. So he's this lawyer hotshot, and he shows up and, uh, and uh, to defend uh, St. Helen Booth on this whiskey revenue charge, right? So... So anyway, Booth calls him to his bedside and says, Look, uh, Finnis, I think I'm dying here. I want to confess something to you. Here's a photograph of me. My name's really John Wilkes Booth. Take this photograph when I die to my brother Edwin Booth in New York City and show it to him. And, uh, and Finnis Bates goes, he didn't believe him at first. He, he didn't believe him. But anyway, um, so, so Booth St. Helen recovers the next day and is all embarrassed. and He's, he's trying to pass it off as a joke. Saying, look, I just I was hallucinating. I just made it up. Uh, can we just forget this? And I have attorney-client privilege, right? You can't tell anybody. And then Bates goes, yeah. But but what Bates did was he 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 started thinking about everything, and then he started writing it into a book. He started producing this book, and um, he sat on it for a number of years, and then um, Finnis started telling people that he was thinking of writing a book, and he was started floating this idea that, hey, do you think this St. Helen Booth story it makes any sense? And he was telling people in Texas about it. And anyway, n- n- the wind of this got back to the Knights, and they told Jesse, and Jesse said, enough's enough. And then Booth knew his, uh, the jig was up, so he skips out to a place called El Reno, Oklahoma. And he was living there for a few years, and... Um, eventually relocated to uh, Enid, Oklahoma. So the night that uh, Jesse James catches up with John Wilkes Booth, how does he, how does he take care of Booth? Well, he, he apparently, this is according to the diaries, uh, Booth was pleading for his life, pleading for Jesse not to shoot him, but what Jesse did was he got some lemonade and he loaded it up with arsenic. Jesse said it was enough to kill ten guys. And he made Booth uh, drink the, uh, the poison lemonade. Booth expires... Uh, in kind of a ghastly fashion, and then Jesse, he lays all this uh, Booth memorabilia around the room, uh, a lot of things to identify the body as Booth rather than uh, St. Helen. Why did he do that if, if he was killing Booth ostensibly because he wouldn't stop talking about how he killed Lincoln, then why would he out Booth at the moment of his death? <laughs> you know, I, I, I would recommend to your, to your readers to, to, to read the diaries of Jesse James because it's a very convoluted story, and it would take me 30 minutes to tell you right now. All right. I just want to get. I just want to say that. Um, so Jesse went down into the lobby of the hotel and gave the um, manager a gold coin, and he said to ask the manager to look in on his friend in the morning because his friend wasn't feeling too well. So the next day, the manager goes up to the hotel room that, that Booth had rented, and he he just freaked out, and uh, of course he called all the press, and so the press went nuts. The press went nuts. 
They took the, the body across the street to a funeral home. This guy started injecting it with um, um, formaldehyde, and he starts so uh, waxing the skin with uh, Vaseline. Because he thinks he's got John... Well, he, he says, I got John Wilkes' booth exactly. body here. I'm going to preserve it, right? Yeah. So he starts... He puts a sign in the window, and he starts charging people 10 cents a peak. And uh, he got 50,000 people come to the door. Did, 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 there was an, was there an aut- uh, like a post-mortem performed uh, even after the body had been embalmed? Yes, yes, but it uh, took a long time. It was not until 1930. And there were ver- several very highly respected MDs that did x-rays of the uh, mummy. And they found, well, they, they found wounds consistent with uh, Booth's um, jump from the balcony at Ford's Theater, for instance, when he fractured his leg. He also had a problem with his... Um, one of his uh, hands, he had this deep scar and broken thumb. and um, All that was I, revealed in the post-mortem. Yeah, it, but what the most interesting thing about it was they found a ring in the body cavity. And the ring, they could discern the initials JWB. He had swallowed it? He had yeah, sw- he had swallowed the ring. And he told that, he told that to some, uh, somebody five years earlier. Amazing. And this body, John Wilkes, John Wilkes Booth's body, uh, traveled around in a circus sideshow for many years, did it not? Yeah. Well, yeah, again, when Finnis Bates, who, was, who had returned to Memphis, Tennessee, to run his law practice there, he, when he heard about this alleged uh, suicide, because it was, it was peddled as a suicide of John Wilkes Booth in Enid, Oklahoma, he, he immediately raced up there. And then uh, he went into the funeral home and he said... Yep, that's him. That's that's the guy I knew in Texas as John, as John St. Helen. That's John Wilkes Booth. So he was another guy who identified him. But but uh, also, John Wilkes Booth's nephew, Junius Brutus Booth, he identified the corpse as that of his uncle, too. So there, plus, plus there are many other people, not just them. What happened to the body? Well, it, it was essentially mummified and... Um, uh, the funeral home director, he eventually ended up giving the, the mummy to Bates, because Bates was the attorney. So Bates took possession of the body, and he tried to, he tried to um, interest Washington in, in uh, taking possession of it, or, uh, but they had absolutely no interest. He also tried to sell it to Henry Ford and the Dearborn Independent. They did a story on it, but uh, Henry, he wanted, he wanted, uh, Bates wanted $100,000 for the mummy, but Henry laughed in his face. And then it just disappeared suddenly. Yeah, it it kind of, uh, it was, it was, about 30 years it was uh, being shunted around all these uh, sideshows and the carnivals in the Midwest, and yeah, it disappeared in the 60s. Nobody this is an amazing story, Mark. Listen, uh, this is uh, this is tremendous work you've done, and uh, I really appreciate. Again, the the website where this can be found. Again, it's entitled "What You Didn't Know About John Wilkes Booth and Jesse James." It's at www.conspiracyarchive.com. Mark, listen, I hope you'll uh, you'll join me again. I'd like to to have you on. Uh, let me know when your next uh, piece is coming out. Thanks, Red. What are you working on? Uh, well, I. Uh, I <laughs> I'd rather not say. All right. I'll call in. I'll call in when it's ready. Oh, fair enough. I look forward to that email. Thank Thank you, Mark. Mark Owen. All right. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley with the Appalachian Portal and a scary tract of land known simply as The Farm. Don't be afraid of the dark. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. In about a half hour's time, Dr. Bill Gibbons, Scottish explorer, cryptozoologist, creation scientist, will be along to tell us about his new book, uh, all about the Mokelium Bembe, this mystery creature of the Congo Basin. He's been to Africa several times on expeditions trying to track this creature down and uh, all the local uh, pygmies uh, in this swamp area um, that have described this creature they encounter. And Mokelium Bembe in the local dialect means able to stem the flow of rivers. And that gives you an idea how big this creature is. And uh, they'll, they'll draw sketches of it, you know, in the sand with a stick or on a sketch pad and so forth. And without being prompted, again and again, this is a long-necked creature, huge body. Uh, it looks like an apotosaurus, or what we used to call brontosauruses, but I, they've, uh, they've changed the name. Now it's uh, an apotosaurus, but a dinosaur, something that was supposed to have died out 60 million years ago, still roaming around in uh, this uh, area in um, sort of south-central Africa. That's uh, Dr. Bill Gibbons. And he'll check in with us shortly. Right now, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. She's a leading expert on the paranormal and supernatural. She conducts original field investigations of haunted and mysterious sites. She's written more than 40 books, including nine encyclopedias and hundreds of articles in print on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics. She possesses an exceptional knowledge uh, in this field, and we're happy that she's a regular contributor to the program, joining us the second Sunday of every month, and she has a brand new book out on the gin, and we'll uh, find out about that as well. Rosemary, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm doing great, and it sure was great to see you in Phoenix at the UFO Congress. That was a terrific event, I must say. Wow. Uh, it, it was a delight uh, seeing you there again as well. So, uh, tell us about this. Um, well, let's first of all talk about uh, the, the, the Appalachian Doorway. What, what, do you, what do you mean by the Appalachian Doorway? It's a name I applied to a paranormal hot zone. Uh, this is a, an area that I think um, has a long history. Well, I think it's been well documented and, and demonstrated a long history of intense paranormal activity covering a variety of manifestations like mysterious lights and craft in the sky, mysterious creatures, uh, a great deal of haunting activity. And uh, I think that it's the home of an entity known as the Jinn. Uh, and uh, my research partner, Phil Imbrogno, and I have been uh, tracking some cases in the Appalachians that fit the profile for the gin, intensely haunted areas with entities who don't want to let go and uh, very difficult to get rid of them. They can cause lots of problems. And so you visited one particular... First of all, let me say, this this um, in, uh, investigation at the farm, as you call it, sk- sounds an awful lot like uh, the Skinwalker Ranch. Well, in fact, uh, we're finding that to be the case, that... The Skinwalker Ranch is by no means unique. There are probably many places like that in these hot zone areas, and they have the same pattern of activity. Uh, and uh, the book that Phil and I just did called The Vengeful Gin, which just came out, uh, we put a, a few examples of 
uh, some of our cases in the book. Um, they're private property, and so we, we have other cases that we, we can't disclose in any detail because of privacy concerns. But fortunately, some individuals are uh, able to let us talk about them uh, e- even in, in general terms. And the farm, um, I would say, really rivals the Skinwalker Ranch. It's um, had a long history of apparitions, impolite creatures, poltergeist phenomena, animal mutilations, mysterious lights in the sky, uh, shape-shifting entities, shadow people, and the uh, ghosts of of human beings, uh, mysterious voices, misplaced objects, and poltergeist effects. And uh, the dominant entity seems to be this being that we've identified as a gin. This um, a, a gentleman that you're calling Jack, who operates this uh, chicken ranch, uh, and at the time was sort of, I guess it was an abandoned, run-down old ramshackle of a place, and he was sort of spending his days working there, but not sleeping there, and he was encountering, uh, well, one of the first things he encountered, uh, I mean, he had this sense that he was always being watched, and it was a very foreboding uh, sense that came over him when he was in the house or even outside working clearing brush. But then he looks out the window one day, and what does he see? Uh, well, once he saw this, like, imp-like creature looking in the window at him, and he described it as something that looked sort of like a demonic cat. And I actually saw this entity myself once. It was small, it had pointed ears, and these funny-looking yellow animal-like eyes, uh, didn't seem to have a lot of hair like a cat, uh, and looked cat-like, but it wasn't a cat, and kind of wrinkled up skin, and it, it peered in the window just very briefly. And uh, um, Jack had found an old woodcut of a demonic entity from the Inquisition days that he thought uh, re- resembled it. It's to me, falls into the area of of mysterious creature. But this chicken farm had been abandoned. It has an old farmhouse on it that um, doesn't have any indoor plumbing and no one lives there, and it had been abandoned for quite some time until the land was purchased um, to be turned into this chicken farm. And so uh, Jack, the manager, actually lives in town nearby and uses the house as uh, kind of a command base for work during the day. But the house has an awful lot of activity in it. And then there's this entity that is both in the house and outside, and it manifests as uh, sometimes a gray pillar and a gray ball that speeds around uh, on the land and shapeshifts as it goes. Uh, when it comes into the house, uh, sometimes it's a shadow figure, like a shadow, dark shadow person. Uh, or it's a, cl- a black cloud that sweeps through the house. Um, it creates footsteps upstairs when nobody's upstairs. Um, there's lots of things that go wrong at the farm, equipment that fails, things that go missing, tools that are misplaced. And then there have been some mysterious chicken deaths that can't be explained. Yeah, these are, uh, uh, and you also mentioned there was a, um, a, somebody there had a tabby, a cat they brought, and uh, uh, it was found sort of uh, drained of blood and all its soft tissue. There there, uh, was this cat mutilation, yes, and it was, seemed to be exsanguinated 
Um, I love that word, by the way. I love that. Let me just stop you there. I love that word, exsanguinated. Exsanguinated. (laughs) Uh, You know, like some of the cattle mutilations that we find associated with uh, UFO activity. And there are a lot of mysterious lights. There's been a long history of mysterious lights uh, through, through the Appalachians in general. Now, we should point out, Rosemary, that um, uh, what what we have here is sort of the the perfect storm for paranormal activity, because not only is the farm located in what you call the the, the Appalachian doorway, but Jack is like a paranormal lightning rod. He really is. He's, He's one of these catalyst persons. And this is another characteristic of these these flammable things, these paranormal flammable situations, um, you, you have uh, an intense hot zone, and then you put the right person in it. It's like putting a gasoline-soaked rag in a gas tank, and you light a match to it, and everything goes kaboom. There are people who are just catalytic, and wherever they go, uh, if there are phenomena lying dormant, they will become active. These people tend to be experiencers from a very young age, and this is the case with Jack. What about these other creatures that he saw sort of out of the corner of his eye, and I believe you saw them as well later? These were, they looked sort of these small, smallish, gray, scurrying creatures with multiple legs. Yes, I call them the little gray scurrying things, and I have seen them at other places, other zone areas and intensely haunted uh, act, uh, areas, but they're, they run up and down the stairs in the farmhouse, and they also scurry along the baseboards, and nobody really knows what they are. They just seem to be some sort of interdimensional creature that gets attracted to these areas. They're about the size of a cat, but they're kind of oval in shape, and they don't really have a head, and they don't have tails, um, and they have multiple legs. Um, they're sort of like ovals on centipede legs, and they move very, very fast. And uh, like I said, they like to hug the baseboards, and I've seen them zip up and down the stairs. They never seem to interact with anyone or do anything overt. They're just sort of there, almost like fish swimming around in a a fish tank. Rosemary, uh, stay put. When we come back, we'll find out how or what happened when you happened onto the scene along with your investigative team. And I know that you spent a great deal of time at the farm and had a great deal of experience. This is one of those, this must be an investigator's, a paranormal investigator's dream. It's like you don't need to go anywhere ever again. You just need to stay at the farm because you've got everything happening right there. You've got UFOs, shadow people, men in black, ghosts, gin, uh interdimensional creatures of every imaginable uh, description. This is it, folks. So uh, we'll come back and find out what happened when Rosemary Ellen Guiley shows up at The Farm, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If this program uh, and my voice can be heard down in uh, parts of West Virginia, and I don't see why not, we clay, we carry clear through down to uh, South Carolina. Uh, and, you know, you're, let's say you're a young student and you're looking for a little bit of uh, farmhand experience and you're going through the want ads and you see an, a job posting, uh, you know, a wanted uh, someone to work part-time helping to repair chicken coops or something at a chicken uh, farm. 
Uh, I would probably do a pre-interview with your prospective employer before you accept because this man, Jack, has had a number of uh, uh, people working for him and uh, they've all had rather harrowing experiences uh, at the farm. One of the young gentlemen actually uh, carried a gun with him because he would hear these incredible noises coming from upstairs, although he knew full well no one else was in the house. Another young gentleman uh, would bring his Bible with him and... uh, he would hear uh, some pretty remarkable sounds upstairs as well. Uh, anyway, that's life at the chicken farm. And uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, here with us. And then she shows up at the farm along with her investigation team. Uh, Rosemary, uh, tell me about uh, your, your, your first visit. Well, one of the things that uh, happened to all of us except myself uh, is that every time we scheduled something... Uh, one of the team members would get knocked out with a medical emergency. It was almost like some sort of supernatural preemptive strike. And it would happen usually on the day uh, the day before or the day of investigation. And I'm talking emergency room uh, stuff. Yeah, one of your, uh, your, your colleagues thought he was having a heart attack. Well, in fact, that, that was Jack. Um, Jack got uh, rushed to the hospital with uh, symptoms of, of a heart attack. Um, my lead investigator uh, got rushed to the hospital with a kidney stone. We had mysterious flu-like ailments that uh, would knock people out. Um, and so we would be either missing team members or we would have to postpone and uh, reschedule something. And uh, we had to wait quite a while uh, for, for Jack to recover. And uh, if he had not wanted to pursue any other in- investigations, we would, of course, have honored that, and, and that would have been the end of things. But it's rather scary uh, to think that your health can be messed with in this sort of way, but that is a characteristic of a lot of these negatively haunted areas. And so, and you were having car troubles, uh, uh, but eventually you, 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 you get there and you, uh, you, you spend some, some nights at the farm. What, 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 what are some of the things that happened to you? Well, we had, um, there was no cell phone service in this remote area, and one night we had the, um, the landline went dead on us. Uh, and so we had really no communication with anyone without getting in the car and driving to another location. And there was a lot of activity in the house that night, too, that was very unfriendly. Uh, we had uh, manifestations of a shadow person that uh, emanated a lot of hostility. Um, the only door in and out of the farmhouse locked on us, and we couldn't open it to get out. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was almost like... Hollywood. It's, it's like the house that screams at you, get out, and then you can't because the doors are locked. Uh, that's the weirdest thing, to have a door that you know is not physically locked, but you can't get it open as though it's deadbolted on the inside. Uh, and um, I received a mysterious cut while I was doing an EVP session. I was um, sitting in the middle of, of the room with nothing around me. And uh, we had the lights off because we were videotaping in, in the night shot infrared. And uh, when the session was, was ended, I saw that I had this, looked like about a two-inch razor cut 
uh, on my forearm that was bleeding a bit. Oh, my. And I didn't feel myself get cut. I have no idea how I got cut while I was sitting in the middle of the living room. But these uh, sorts of things are characteristic of negative haunted places. Uh, the razor cuts occur in demonic cases. People often get them on their arms and legs. Um, and uh, I, Richard, I've done a paranormal investigation since the 1980s, and uh, yeah, I've gotten the odd push and tug and things like that here and there, but I've never really been injured. It's not like TV, you know, where that stuff is, is kind of fabricated for entertainment's sake. Never, never really been injured, and um, it's very puzzling. I can't account for it. And and uh, well, let me uh, cut to the chase here because this, to me, is is uh, the uh, sort of the, the the most fascinating or, or scary part. You you uh, decided to do a séance. There was a woman that was brought in from town uh, by the name of Gail, I guess, who had uh, had some ex- similar paranormal experiences. Experiences. She lived near the farm. She agreed to come to the farm. You conducted a séance using uh, sort of a miniature version of Frank's box, which is a device that allows sort of two-way live communication between here and the other side, the spirit world? Yes, that's right. We had not been able to get any communication with this dominant entity that we felt was uh, a Ginny, and that's very characteristic of them. They they often will not communicate. But we were introduced to a woman from a neighboring town who had been to the farm and felt that she had some sort of rapport connection that, um, it might communicate with her. And she had never done a, she was not a medium, never done a seance, never done any channeling whatsoever. And uh, so uh, Jack and myself and several of the other principal investigators and Gail uh, did a seance where it did communicate. And uh, it was very arrogant and overbearing, very condescending. Uh, said it was very old and ancient, had been there a very long time, probably thousands of years. And in other words, it owned the place, and it really didn't like all the all the activity. It didn't like people, didn't like all the noise and the racket, and it wanted everybody to go away. It was going to pester people until it got its way. Is pretty much what it conveyed. Can I can I just read uh, some, of the, some of the transcript? The sure. uh, <laughs> sounds I sound like a court stenographer here, but uh, <laughs> um, so again, you turn on the box and and you say, "Give us a name," and the entity says, "What name? Do you live here?" "Yes, I do." Be more specific. How long have you lived here? Hundreds. Do you know Gail? Yes. How do you know Gail? Explain. Iroquois? Speak up. What 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 does that mean? Iroquois, as in Native American Iroquois? Uh, yes, it seemed to have a connection to Native Americans. I think that the um, the Native Americans have been aware of these entities and have probably steered clear of them. And then it says, who else is here? Do you know my name? This is you speaking. Say my name if you do. And then it says, Rosemary. Uh, What do you want to communicate? Respect. What do you want Gail to know and say? And then get this. It it, it answers, she belongs to Satan. Uh... So what do we what do we think here then, Rosemary? Are, are, Are Jin or Ginny, are they satanic? I don't think they're satanic, although some of them um, can act in very demonic sorts of ways. But um, I think a lot of this is sort of fear-engendering chain-yanking. Negative entities find if they invoke 
the devil and Satan and, and things like that. It makes people fearful. And Gail has been a lifelong experiencer herself, and she's had a lot of troubling uh, bedroom visitations, negative entities pestering her at night, and it's been very difficult for her to cope with that sometimes. So my take on that was uh, it was trying to rattle Gail and make her afraid. It, it didn't like the mini box. It didn't like Frank's box. It told you to turn it off, did it not? Yes, and I, I think there was something uh, about the frequency that this is radio sweep, and it just sweeps all the existing radio stations and produces a very jumbled noise that a lot of spirits can use for, for real-time communication. And uh, I've had shadow people attracted to this device, uh, and I speculate that it generates... Um, uh, frequency and energy that some might find very disruptive. The jinn seem to be very sensitive to electromagnetic uh, frequencies and um, also electrical fields. And so it could have been generating something that, um, as, as we like to say, gave it a headache. And then you say, who is your leader? And then it says, uh, Dark Prince, Hare Krishna, Satan, Satan rules the earth. So as you say, this is just a little bit of chain rattling and trying to touch on some maybe some common uh, 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 reference points that this entity thinks will scare people by invoking, obviously, the name of the Dark Prince and Satan. But let me ask you, for those not familiar with Jinn, and that's spelled D-J-I-N-N, uh, and, and the new book, of course, your new book is uh, The Vengeful Jinn, Unveiling the Hidden Agendas of Genies. Why did you suspect this was a jinn, and what exactly are jinn? The jinn are a supernatural race that existed, according to lore, on the earth before the arrival of human beings. And they lost this world uh, for because of humans. And there's a faction of them that, that wanted back, so they're, they're sort of like terrorists against us. Um, they are, originate in Middle Eastern lore. Uh, they pre-exist Islam, although they were absorbed into Islam. And um, they, in Islam, they sort of function as the, the demons and the devil do in Christianity. You know, the bad ones are uh, acting out against humanity. Um, but they're not the same as demons. They're, uh, they're a race unto themselves. And... Uh, having been pushed out of our world, uh, you could say in, in modern terms that means they've gone into a parallel dimension. And um, uh, they're masterful shapeshifters. Um, according to very ancient lore, they live for thousands of years. And they, they are the basis of the wish-granting genie from Arabian folktales. The term jinn, when it was uh, translated first into French and then into English, was translated as genie. Um, because there was some association of them with the uh, the Roman concept of the genius or the spirit of place. Are you convinced that they are real? I am convinced they are real, and uh, I believe that they are everywhere. Uh, their name, Jin, means the hidden ones, and I think that they uh, engage in disguise, masquerade, and stealth. Are they then perhaps of staying hidden? Are they then, uh, a final question, uh, Rosemary, then, are the jinn, uh, in effect, the root cause of many of the paranormal manifestations that people are seeing at places like the Skinwalker's Ranch and the farm and elsewhere? And I'm talking about uh, uh, shadow people, 
ghosts, poltergeists, even UFO ET uh, uh, phenomena? I have become more convinced of that, and we do make the case for that in The Vengeful Jinn. We don't say that the other entities don't exist, because I think they do too, but uh, we feel, uh, my co-author Phil and Brogno and I, we feel that the jinn are making use of those contact experiences and taking on those disguises as a way of pursuing their agendas with us while remaining hidden in the shadows. Well, if they are as plentiful as you say, and uh, if the farm is any indication, these are pernicious, nefarious entities. I think we would uh, be well advised to learn as much about them as we can, and the best way to do that is to purchase The Vengeful Jinn, Unveiling the Hidden Agendas of Genies, co-authored by my guest, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She joins me the second Sunday of every month. Rosemary, always a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. And I'd just like to mention my Gin website, which is new as an educational resource, www.ginuniverse.com. Ginuniverse.com. We best check it out. All right, uh, we'll, we'll do a whole show on Gin uh, next month, Rosemary. Looking forward to it. That sounds great. All right, Bill Gibbons, the dinosaur hunter, on the other side. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Question everything indeed, including everything you hear on this program. Bill Gibbons. We know him affectionately as the dinosaur hunter, explorer, creation scientist, cryptozoologist, the author of uh, missionaries and Monsters, and now a brand new book entitled Mokelium Bembe, Mystery Beast of the Congo Basin. And uh, always a delight to welcome Bill to The Conspiracy Show. Bill, how are you? It's wonderful to hear you again, Richard. You, thank you so much for the invitation. You too. Thank you. Wow, this book um, is really the culmination of, of life's work, isn't it? I mean, how many times have you been to, uh, to Africa and the Congo uh, in search of this uh, dinosaur-like creature? Well, you're talking about six expeditions so far, spread over three decades. I didn't realize how long ago it was when I started doing this, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, we're, we're um, at the point now where we've got so much data on our hands, we're able to much more effectively plan the next expedition as far as locations are concerned, um, exactly what we need to do, equipment in particular that we're going to take along, so, um, you know, we're, we're getting very confident now that we are um, going to um, at least have that ultimate prize in the bag, or at least in, on our cameras in the not-too-distant future. Uh, so tell me about the, the uh, locals that live in the area that you've been exploring. These are pygmies. What do they tell you and others about the Mokelium Bembe? Well, there's a number of different names to this animal. For example, in the Congo, the pygmies there, the Aka people, uh, call the animal Mokeli and Bembi, which is a Lingala word, means the one who stops the flow of rivers. Now, they describe an animal in the Likuala swamps that approximates the size of a hippo, sometimes as big as an elephant, with a long, thin neck uh, ending in a small head, very much like a lizard or snake, a long tail, four stubby legs. Uh, it spends most of its time in the water, 
but emerges in the hot afternoons and very often at night to feed on the overhanging vegetation, um, usually leaves and fruits. And um, the Babinga or Baka people, also pygmies, but this time in Cameroon, call the animal Lakila Bembe. They also describe it being pretty much the same, um, an animal that can be as big, sometimes even bigger than an elephant, uh, with a long, thin neck, a small head like a snake uh, or lizard, long, flexible tail, four powerful legs. But sometimes the animals have a series of rigid dermal spikes running the length of the head, neck, back, and tail. That took us by surprise because um, that was um, a feature of sauropod dinosaurs that paleontologists were unaware of until some beautifully preserved um, long-necked dinosaurs, I believe uh, these were the Diplodocus, found in Texas uh, with skin impressions on the rock, which included dermal spikes. But the, the, the Diplodocus is, was, was like one of the largest dinosaurs ever, was it not? It was, bigger than Mokele and Bambi, going on the reports we're receiving. But now we know that more than one species of sauropod including, for example, the Elasmosaurus of South America, had these large dermal spikes. But the pygmies, now these are people who live in remote locations, um, along the, the most remote rivers you can imagine, um, who have no education, cannot read, cannot write. There's no electricity there, no televisions, no radios. But yet they are able to accurately describe to us morphological features um, that befit sauropod dinosaurs that paleontologists are only now beginning to discover from their fossil finds. Is it possible, Bill, that, that while this uh, creature, the Mokelia Mbembe, may, uh, may resemble, its morphology may resemble a sauropod, whether we're talking about an apatosaurus or some other type of sauropod, it may resemble that, but it is in fact just some heretofore uh, unrecognized, unidentified, uncatalogued, unstudied uh, creature. Yes, you have a good point there. Now, if I honestly you know, put my hand on my heart right now, Richard, and said, can I say with 100% um, certainty that Mokele and Bambi is a living dinosaur, truthfully, I would have to say no, I cannot say that. Because the animal resembles a sauropod, what we would imagine a sauropod to look like in life, uh, it's uh, going on, its appearance, its morphology, the description the animal, they give the animal, including it, its preferred diet, which is entirely vegetable. But it could be a brand new species, perhaps something, a, a subspecies that is distantly related to sauropod dinosaurs uh, that is new to us. And that would not surprise me in the least, because as Aristotle said, there is always something new coming out of Africa. But Bill, you are a creation scientist. You are a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you are a, a new world creation scientist, meaning you, yes. that you believe that the earth is on the order of uh, roughly 10,000 or less uh, years old. Six... Know, the, the earth could be older. I think the verdict oh. isn't quite in okay. uh, as far as the earth, age of the earth is concerned. It could be older. Um, I don't believe it's 4.5 billion years old. I think the sound scientific evidence that the Earth is actually much younger um, than, uh, much, much younger than that, as a matter of fact. But, um, you know, Richard, going on some of the finds that we have collectively around the world, you've seen the Ica stones, you've yes. seen the, 
um, you, you know, the, the, these uh, curious clay figurines found in Mexico. Uh, you've seen the cave drawings, uh, etc., etc. Uh, when you collect all this up, going on descriptions of people seeing these animals today in, in the more remote regions of Africa, um, it really does suggest to us that humans and dinosaurs have coexisted. Now, uh, we're never going to be able to prove that until we can get one of these creatures on film, crystal clear digital film um, that will give zoologists an opportunity to study um, so they can, uh, you know, come to a sound conclusion as to what the animals actually are. What's the closest you've gotten to one of these? I mean, uh, have you have you seen uh, footprints? Have you seen uh, uh, scat? Uh, what have you seen? We haven't seen scat. The animals spend the time in the water, therefore any waste would be deposited at the bottom of the river. Um, however, we have seen footprints. Um, before the footprints, we, we were about 100 feet away from one of them. This was in November 2003. Uh, we were going up a narrow, narrow channel uh, on the Jar River, which is a very big river in Africa, in uh, Cameroon. It runs down into the Congo. And um, there was an area there that the local fishermen gave a wide berth to. They called it the Forbidden Zone. And what it was was um, an island, which they called it Swamp Island, because uh, it was very swampy there, um, had created this narrow channel away off the main body of the river on the Congo side, and there was a series of five caves there. Now, we saw the tips of the caves protruding just above the waterline. Uh, the river at that time, I'm guessing, was a good 20 feet deep. Now, uh, myself and my fellow explorer from Saskatchewan, Regina, Saskatchewan, Brian Sass, and I were in a canoe with... Pierre Sima, he's our Cameroonian helper, big, big, big man, six feet two. And we were in a canoe uh, paddling against the current going through this narrow channel. And this place spooked the local tribe people so much, we could never get the same two people to take us out into the river in their canoe. So we had to keep getting new boatmen all the time. On this particular day, we were paddling against the current, passing these caves when the pygmy fellow at the front of the canoe started shouting and pointing ahead of him, and the pygmy who was behind me at the stern of the canoe or the back of the canoe um, was looking in the direction, and they started chattering very excitedly to one another, and we said to Pierre, what are they saying, what are they saying? And he said, there's a big animal crossing ahead of us in the river. Now, he stood up in the canoe, and if Brian and I had done that, we'd all end up in the river, but what Pierre stated was the animal was crossing the river ahead of us, heading towards Swamp Island, and it raised its head out of the water. Uh, it looked like the sh a sort of a shape of an American football, um, but it, with distinct reptilian features. And the, as you know, Richard, the sound of human voices carries across the water. Now, what happened was, as soon as this animal detected the sound of our voices, because the pygmies by this time were extremely frightened, and they were about to turn the canoe around and head back the other way, but we through our, our, our best efforts, managed to keep them from doing that. And then the animal, as soon as it became aware of us and the commotion that we were causing, dipped its head under the water. Now, by the time we got back to the eastern shoreline where our camp was and our boatmen had calmed down sufficiently, we were able to get all this information out of them. Now, what's so interesting is, Pierre said, going on the locomotion of the animal, its head was bobbing back and forth slightly, 
That told him it was walking along the bottom of the river. Remember I said that river was close to 20 feet deep? Oh, my. Yes. Now, uh, about uh, three or four months later, in February of 2004, Brian Sass returned to that area along with Peter Beach from Portland, Oregon. Peter is a microbiologist, a very, very clever man. Now, he, Brian, and Pierre went back to Swamp Island. By this time, the water level was very low, um, probably five or six feet deep by this time. It was the dry season. And they found a number of footprints um, on Swamp Island, on the soft mud. And directly above the footprints was, you know, they they noticed that the the leaves uh, and the fruits from the tree branches had been stripped away to a height of at least 18 feet. Uh, They were able to measure that accurately. And the footprints were elephant-sized, but they weren't made by elephants. There's no elephants in that immediate area. Pierre Sima is an expert elephant tracker, and he was able to determine um, that these were made by an animal the size of an elephant, but were distinctly different. Now, they measured them out accurately. Peter Beach had taken some plaster casts of them. And um, I think I sent you uh, the Mokele and Bembe handbook and an yes. attachment. Okay, and you can see a picture of Peter the measuring out these caves, which by this time were sealed up from the inside, including um, the one, I think, plaster cast of a clawed toe compared to a fossilized clawed toe of a sauropod dinosaur, and they're practically identical. Oh, my. They yeah. seal these caves up themselves from the inside? They, they, they basically wall themselves into, the, in, into these uh, muddy caves? This was a mystery to us for such a long time, Richard. Um, Roy Mackle, biochemist from the University of Chicago, when he went to the Congo in 1981, he was shown a cave uh, by that. This was the dry season again on the Likawala Oserb River. And he was shown a cave that was already open in the dry season that had been used um, in the wet season as a lair by Mokili and Bembi. But, of course, the animal had moved on and had not reused the cave. Uh, and um, so the information back then told us the animals used underwater caverns as lairs. Um, we couldn't understand where they went in the dry season because the river level is very low, all the swamps dry up. And we eventually found that the animals hibernate because reptiles tend to do this crocodiles do this for example it's called uh, reptiles have a sort of a hibernation cycle where they will go into a state of inactivity and so mokele and bembis uh, according to our best eyewitness experts will go into these large chambers and seal them up from the inside with a small air vent at the top of the cave and they will remain in there until the wet season returns Year. All right, Bill, stay put. We'll uh, come back. Uh, a few more questions remain on the Mokele and Bembe. Bill Gibbons, the dinosaur hunter, his brand new book, Mokele and Bembe, Mystery Beast of the Congo Basin, here on The Conspiracy Show, back with more in a moment. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. This uh, piece of music that we hear coming back is by a local composer who wrote and uh, 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 composed, uh, performed, recorded, engineered the whole shebang, this song for this show. This is our new second hour theme, although we're getting to it a little bit later uh, in the program. But uh, thanks to Jeff Eden uh, of Studio 8. I just love that piece of music. And Jeff um, uh, has agreed to, to compose some other pieces of work exclusively for the Conspiracy Show, and I'm very excited to have uh, to, Je- to have Jeff uh, doing this uh, for me. I absolutely love that piece of music, and uh, eventually we'll have um, Jeff will will probably do the, the the theme for the the main theme for the show, the opening. Uh, Bill Gibbons is with us, the Dinosaur Hunter. Oh, uh, Bill will stay with us until the bottom of the hour, twelve thirty, and then we're going to open up the phone lines. It's been a while since I've been like sitting in this chair doing the show live, uh, so. It's been a while since I've had a, 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 an opportunity to chat with y'all, as Oprah would say. So uh, we'll give you that opportunity. If there's anything over the last several weeks that you've heard, if you want to talk about the uh, the, the show on uh, wireless technology, EMF, uh, my good friend Victor Vigiani, of course, uh, hosted the show while I was away in Arizona. If you want to talk about that show, EMF, uh, or anything else that you've heard over the last little while, anything you'd like to hear on the program, you'll have that opportunity in about uh, 10 minutes. Right now, Bill Gibbons is with us, one of my favorite people, and a brand new book out on Mokeli Mbembe, The Mystery Creature of the Congo uh, Basin. Bill, give me a little, uh, some, some clues uh, for those who haven't seen the book yet. What's in there? Are, there? are there photographs? Are there eyewitness accounts? What's in the book? The book is absolutely full of illustrations, photographs, um, artists' interpretations, and so on. And uh, basically what it is, it, it's, a, it's a, an overview of the earliest accounts of alleged living dinosaurs in Africa coming up to the latest research. The last chapter actually covers the trip that we did to Cameroon uh, with Monster Quest, you know, for the History Channel. Yes. That was about and two and a half years ago, wasn't it? The, yeah, it was in uh, early 2009. And uh, the the interesting thing was the camera crew uh, that were with us, uh, when they saw, uh, we, we camped in a pygmy village, and when they basically started questioning the natives through Pierre Seaman, our translator, and people who were visiting the village from another part of the country, the Bagando tribe, and they called the animal Maku and Bembu, again, a different name. There's actually 15 different names for Mokili and Bembi from different tribal groups around Equatorial 15. Africa. 15. So, it, you know, that's very telling, uh, Bill. If you have 15 names for something, that means an awful lot of people, different people, have seen this thing. Well, that's true, Richard, you know, because the thing is that we're talking about an area that comprises of 800,000 square miles. A lot of it is still unexplored. You've got um, dozens and, uh, well, hundreds of different tribal groups, all speaking uh, a variety of different languages. I mean, you've got, um, just in Cameroon alone, they speak 240 different tribal languages. The whole area is populated, that is, this 800,000 square mile location is populated by close to 60, pe- 60 million people who speak 729 different ethnic and tribal tongues. My word. 
I mean, Cameroon alone in the southwest province, the Chamba people call the animal the Mbulu Mbembe. In this Cameroon central province, the Yondi tribe call it the Noe, that's N-W-E. Are they afraid of this thing? Oh, they're all afraid of it. Um, every different witness we've spoken to from all the different ethnic and tribal groups uh, not only describe the same animal to us, and the same habits, same locate, uh, the same... Uh, you, you know the same the same behavioural patterns, the same diet, um, this uh, you know the same habitat. They are all deathly afraid of this. These animals are extremely dangerous if they are approached, and all of them say that they will kill hippos and elephants if encountered. Wait a minute, so they, they, they're all very much afraid of these animals. The Mokeli, sorry, Bill, to interrupt. You just said something there that I found startling. The Mokeli and Bembe will kill elephants and hippos. Yes. It's a fiercely territorial enemy. They, they only see them singularly. They don't herd together, as you would imagine sauropods might do. Um, they're solitary animals for the most part, but they've been observed in groups of twos and threes. And this is the interesting thing about the footprints that we found in, on uh, Swamp Island. Uh, we found footprints of two adults and one young or, or juvenile, uh, Lakila Bembe. Um, you know, so they were, they were in this feeding frenzy before entering their caves and sealing them up in early February. Uh, when the team arrived there, they reckoned the footprints were probably about two weeks old. And they were very well preserved because the native people are just so afraid of these animals, they will keep away from locations where they know the animals are still active. Have there been any recent altercations or, or encounters where either one of the natives have been uh, killed by this creature or the natives have killed one of the Mokeli and Bembe? There's been two accounts of the animal being killed, one in 1960 in Lake Telly, where one of the animals was speared to death by fishermen living there, the Bagando pygmies, and they erected a, a stake barrier across the entrance to the lake from the swamps uh, because the animals kept coming into the lake daily and disturbing the fishing activities of the pygmies. So they, in spite of their great fear of the animals, they erected a stake barrier to try and keep them, stop them from entering the lake. And when they observed one animal entering or attempting to enter the lake, they speared it to death. Um, another case in Cameroon, in the Sanaga River, which is in central Cameroon, where the, the animal is called the Naway, uh, one of the animals got stuck, um, wandering too close to a village and couldn't get back into deeper water, and the, the villagers speared it to death and ate it. <laughs> and um, and it, it took forever to, because it provided so much meat, the animal was so big. So there must be some bones or something lying around some bo somewhere, Bill. What happens is, um, just uh, uh, you know, going back almost 10 years now, when Pierre Sima went to a village on the border with the Central African Republic, they had killed an animal. They, they call it the Ngubu, which they keep picking out pictures of a triceratops that looks like this animal. But wh what they do is they tend to uh, eat the meat, uh, they, they give the bones to the village dogs to finish off, and, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they even sawed the horns off and sold them to, uh, to a couple of French loggers, you know, they happened to meet along the way. So evidence of this kind is very quickly dispersed with. But we're, what we're trying to do is, in spite of our limited financial uh, means, is that we're trying to set up a reward system where if the pygmies observe or, or know exactly where we can go and see a Mokeli and Bembi or an Ngubu or the giant spiders that they talk about, for example, these monster arachnids with four or five foot leg spans, you know, then, uh, you know, if, if they can take us to a place where we can see them or they kill one of these things, keep some physical evidence for us so that we can have that, that physical evidence 
you know, we can take it to a laboratory and get it tested, have some genetic tests run, for example, and we will give them uh, a reward for that. So we're hoping that we can make some progress there. What's an expedition uh, like that cost to send you and a couple of people over there with, you know, equipment and provisions and so forth? Well, the expedition we're next planning would have better equipment. So right now we're, we're trying to raise $20,000, which is no mean feat. A lot of the, the big creationist organizations, sadly, don't seem to be too concerned about helping us for some reason. I don't know why. Um, you would think this would be something that they would be very keen to support. So what we're going to do this time is we're going to set up a, fa- a Facebook page as, as well as put together a 20-minute video for YouTube, you know, because social media is really the way to go these days. I'm sure you realize that yourself, Richard. And uh, we're going to see if we can, if we can get 20,000 people to give us $1 each, which is not beyond the realms of possibility in social media, uh, then we would have enough to get all our, the new equipment that we require and our plane tickets and get back out to uh, Central Africa and really make some advances in our search for Machili and Bempe. Well, Bill, I'd love to get my uh, my TV crew together and go over there with you. I mean, uh, uh, you know, maybe we can figure something out here. Even National Geographic were there recently. They, I was a consultant to one of their film crews, Icon Films. They're just, yes, just yes. Lisa Sir, Beastman. And I was a consultant for them on, on the Mokeli and Bembe, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting a DVD from them. But yes, it, it really doesn't take a lot. I mean, I, uh, very quickly, if I can mention to you, Richard, I was in France last year to visit the great French explorer, Michel Ballot, um, who has been to Central Africa 20 times, and he and I are going to hopefully team up later this year and pool our resources in our search for Mokeli and Bembe. And who knows, perhaps we may be able to make it possible for maybe a couple of your film crew members to come along with us this time. Oh, would would absolutely uh, love to do that and uh, uh, do an episode on, on, on you and the Mokeli and Bembe, your search for Mokeli and Bembe, uh, maybe even a documentary. Uh, I'll be, well, I'll meet with my director uh, next week and I'll uh, definitely make sure uh, we discuss this. Listen, Bill, it's... Um, Always a thrill to talk to you, and I, I wish you the best of luck on this book. This is really, a, a, you know, a labor of love for you, I know, and uh, uh, I really encourage people to uh, to get onto Amazon.com and or Amazon.ca, Amazon.uk, wherever you are, and uh, get a copy of the book, Mokeli Mbembe, Mystery Creature of the Congo Basin. And um, I know mine's uh, in the mail and on en route. I can't wait to... Uh, Uh, to read it. In the meantime, Bill, uh, stay in touch and we'll talk soon. I will, Richard, and very quickly I'll say it was the the world's number one cryptozoology book last year, 2010. Uh, Anyone who buys a book, the proceeds will go directly to the next expedition. Excellent, excellent. Deservedly so. The number one cryptozoology book. Dr. William Gibbons, the dinosaur hunter. All right, when we come back, open lines to the top of the hour. 416-360- 0740. It's been a while. 416 360 0740 and 1 866 740 4740. The phone lines are open and all yours. Days are much too 
officials so we can sleep at night so why are you up 416-360-0740 or toll free in ontario 1-866-740-4740 last week nelson thal was uh, here with me and we interviewed john loftus author of america's nazi secret and uh that was a, a two-hour conversation. We didn't uh, we didn't take calls, but uh, you, so you didn't get in on that discussion. But if there was anything that you heard that you'd like to discuss, uh, you could do that now with me. Uh, and the week prior to that, uh, I was down in Arizona uh, shooting uh, episodes for the conspiracy uh, show TV program, and Victor Vigiani, my good uh, friend, sat in this chair, and I listened to the podcast uh, about a week and a half ago. Uh, and, and Victor did a, just an absolutely stellar job along with, of course, um, uh, Professor um, Magda Havas from Trent University, who is one of the, she's on the forefront of uh, uh, investigating the physiological effects of wireless technology, EMF uh, or RF uh, transmissions from everything from you know, microwaves, cell phones, uh, uh, even baby monitors. And... Uh, I tell you, I, um, I'm going to do a, a, a TV program about this as well, the dangers of, uh, of wireless technology. I visited uh, Robert Metzinger, who was in um, our episode on electronic harassment, actually, which aired this past Friday. Uh, once in a while, Robert will get a call from someone who believes that they are the victim of electronic harassment and he can uh, go to their house and he has all of these uh, monitors and uh, um, meters and so forth and can, and, uh, can tell if uh, these people are under attack or, um, or at least, you know, whether they're being bombarded by EMF. But as it turns out, we all are. Uh, if you look out your window, you're probably only a stone's throw away from one of these cell towers. They're just everywhere. Everywhere. And now your smart meters uh, that Ontario Hydro has put on your house so that the meter man doesn't have to, uh, you know, um, go right up to your house. He just passes probably within 30 meters and uh, he can actually by remote get your, your hydro meeting, your hydro meter reading. Uh, and if you're in a, you know, a neighborhood with sort of a high density population, you're surrounded by these smart meters and these uh, smart meters and these smart meters emit sort of a microwave pulse and it can go right through from what I understand, right through into your, uh, the, uh, if it's on the exterior wall, it'll come right through into your house. So I was at Robert Metzinger's house and also Robert was on with Victor. Uh, I tell you, I left Robert's house after the interview, thinking, my God, i got to get rid of the microwave. And uh, I don't use my cell phone very often. I'm one of these pay-as-you-go people. But, um, and, the, and the reason I, I, it's just expensive, and it's, it's, you know, there's something to be said for not being able to get, someone not being able to get a hold of you all the time, so I've just not, I've never been a fan of the cell phone, but now, <laughs> less than ever. And we have, uh, we have, of course, uh, wireless uh, internet in our house, and we have the wireless uh, phones, the handsets. Um, I'm thinking I, I got to get away. I got to do away with all of that stuff. So, 
If you'd like to talk about that program that you heard here on The Conspiracy Show, on the dangers of EMF, you can uh, certainly do that now till the top of the hour at 416-360-04. Sorry, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740 and toll free from out of town, 866-744-740. What else can we talk about? If there's something that uh, you'd like to hear on the program coming up, then uh, we can discuss that as well. Or if you had a paranormal encounter, those strange incidents that make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, uh, then uh, you can share that with me as well. It's been a while, uh, and I always uh, look forward to doing the open line segment. I, I've said it before, and I will say it again and again. I get the best calls anywhere in radio, anywhere on this very program. And we'll get to some of those calls when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. This is the radio version of The Conspiracy Show, and of course you can listen every Sunday night starting at 11 p.m. Eastern, uh, but you can also watch The Conspiracy Show on television. Two half-hour episodes starting at 11 p.m. Friday nights on Vision TV. That's Channel 60 on Rogers in the GTA and across Canada on uh, the Bell uh, Dish, uh, Channel 261, and on Shaw Direct 264. But as always, check local listings. And this is important. We now have a website for the TV show called theconspiracyshow.com. Now, we've got it up, it's running, it's a work in progress, it's, uh, it's you know, there's far more uh, things that are going to be added, elements that are going to be added, but uh, the main thing was we just wanted to get a presence on the website, it's up and running, so go check it out, and as I say, we'll be adding to it uh, um, in, in significant ways in the coming weeks and months. Uh, but I, I, I really want you to visit theconspiracyshow.com, and let's get to the phones and out to Rockwood we go. Edwin, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I like uh, very much your show. Thank you. And I got a comment about these um, uh, meters, hydrometers. Oh, the smart meters. The smart meters. Well, I don't think they are very smart. Because, uh, <laughs> I agree because... with you. Pardon? I agree with you. I, don't think that, I think that's a poor name for them. Because some some people are I don't know allergic to them and uh, you know I myself I don't want them I think uh, it's a waste of money and uh, I think that the uh, premier has got uh, a good deal on those uh, smart uh, hydro meters. Seriously, uh, he found somebody that told him, "Hey, listen, for ten bucks he can uh, have uh, the city of Rockwood doing them." And uh, we're going to charge them, you know, $100 each and whatever. I think that this uh, premier is putting all these people, not only Rockwood, all, all over Ontario, okay, into the deepest depth that there is, because 
like myself, I uh, I lost my job, the company closed down, and uh, you know it's making us making it uh, harder for me to. Um, it's, make ends meet. It's it is tough out there, Edwin, and I and I uh, um, I, I feel for you. I, I'm I'm sorry that you that you lost your job, um, but you know, the thing that's even more perhaps even more important than a job is is your health. And what I want to know is, you mentioned that some per- people seem to be allergic to these smart meters, but I mean, uh, have you or anyone in your house experienced some strange? Uh, health effects since the smart meter has been in, put in place? Not yet, i tell you the truth, because uh, now it's winter time, we don't go that much uh, outside like. But I'm, I'm, I'm told uh, by Robert Metzinger that the, 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 the pulse that is emitted uh, by these smart meters can penetrate your wall, come right inside your house. Well, that, uh, I don't know, the, uh, I think it was, what, the, uh, the first week that they put it in, you know, I smelled, I felt something funny in my uh, body. I don't know what it was. And uh, to tell you the truth, I said, well, I think I'll pick up the phone and I call my doctor and make an appointment and say, what are these? Right? But uh, uh, my doctor lives too far. And by the time I got there, I forgot what uh, I wanted to tell him. But yes, I did uh, feel something like uh, something never been on my body, like. Yes, you know? yes. So I don't know what whether it was the uh, the uh, this uh, smart meter. Well, I, I, what I think, sorry, what I think is it's a waste of money. I think the the one with the digital, I mean digital, with the uh, hands there, uh, the uh, meter, you know, it was good enough. Okay, I think that this government is running out of money. He's spending lots of money, half our money. Or nothing, and he's trying to make up uh, for it by you know charging us uh, chesty and uh, whatever, whatever. Well, the thing, uh, I, the problem that I have with uh, the smart meters, Edwin, is uh, that um, we didn't. I didn't okay it. They they just came onto my property and they put this thing on the side of my house. Now they didn't ask me if I wanted it, and I certainly don't. Uh, the other op- the other thing, of course, is that uh, you know in in peak in peak uh, hours they can sort of con- remotely control your your thermostat. Uh, they they can you know uh, they can prevent you from putting your air conditioner on. And uh, I don't like giving up that kind of control uh, to governments either. But far more disturbing to me um, is what are the health effects of this thing? They do, from what I understand. Uh, emit these sort of these EMF type blasts. They're sending out this signal, uh, something like six thousand times a day, if I remember Robert Metzinger. Anyway, Robert's um, uh, uh, website is safelivingtechnologies.com, I believe. Safelivingtechnologies.com. It's either safelivingtechnologies.com or .ca. But if you just Google safe living technologies, uh, you'll come up to the website. And uh, uh, Robert, uh, what he does is he can come to your house and he can and he he can. Uh, uh, check to see what sort of levels of EMF are coming into your house. Even if you don't have wireless uh, internet or cell phones of your own, likely it's coming through your walls. Uh, dirty electricity is another name for it, and we're just constantly being bombarded by it. And we're only now beginning to understand the health effects, and that's where Dr. Magda uh, Havis comes in, because she's really on the forefront of studying this. 
let's say hello to Andy in Palmerston. Andy, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Well, well thank you very much. Uh, I would like to talk about the source of uh, uh, one source of a mega, a mega EMF bombardment. Uh, but first, let me just tell you this quick uh, preview that goes with it. That uh, I saw on uh, YouTube, uh, oh, I think it was YouTube, yes, YouTube, where an engineer was using salt water. He put a wick in the glass of salt water, and he uh, put a, he had some kind of a, a generator uh, that uh, seemed to generate uh, waves into that glass, and he took a match and he lit it, and that salt water uh, was a fuel that was uh, burning the wick. So that was quite an interesting experiment. But how this question relates to my question is that uh, for years now, out somewhere in Alaska, there's a there's a, a transmitter called HARP. Yes. Now HARP has been generating these waves for years and years, and uh, two things. One, I've never found out uh, what the results of that experiments are and why they're continuing it. And secondly, if we have salt water out on the BC, and and that those uh, generators can start a liquid uh, uh, on fire, that salt water. Couldn't harp do the same thing? Um, I'm just saying it's possible. Well, harp course, is but, what harp uh, harp is is uh, the, it's an array of radio, essentially radio transmitters in the in the in, in Alaska. It stands for High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, and it's a joint program that's run by uh, a couple of research institutes, maybe even Harvard, and I think DARPA, which is uh, you know the U.S. Defense Department's sort of advanced weaponry research program. Uh, and ostensibly, what they're doing is they're blasting the ionosphere with these radio waves, uh, and it's uh, to uh, to study the effects of that on the ionosphere. Also, uh, ostensibly, they're they're what they're doing is um, they're trying to enhance uh, communication. Uh, what happens, I think, with um, with uh, with with radar and other things is once you. If you're in a plane and you go over the Earth's, you know, past the horizon, uh, the 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 communication um, is is weakened. But so they're trying to enhance that communication. That's that's a couple of the things that are ostensibly going on with HARP. And of course, uh, some researchers think that there's something far more sinister. Things like weather control, uh, even mind control. Uh, uh, in fact, some are even uh, positing that they can using HARP. And the extremely low um, um, frequencies can can manufacture earthquakes uh, yes, and yes, things like this. A, yes, it's still a form of uh, electromagnetic uh, contamination and uh, huge amounts of it. I still think it might affect even people somehow. I don't know. i just curious because I hear that they're going for years and years, yet what are the results of those experiments? That's what I'd like to know. Is it useless to continue? Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly been a long-running uh, experiment, if that's, in fact, what they are doing. Andy, yeah. thank you for the call in Palmerston. Always appreciate it, uh, hearing from you. It's been a while. You're uh, welcome. Norma is uh, in the Six Nation Reserve uh, area near my old hometown, Brantford. Hello, Norma. Good morning. Hello. Hi, are you in uh, Cayuga? Uh, my name is Lorna. Lorna, my apologies. And yeah. are you in uh, Ashwigan or Cayuga or Hagersville? Whereabouts yeah. are you? Ashwigan. Ashwigan, ah. Yeah. You know, that's a beautiful... Um, uh, years ago, I used to work for a, uh, 
an appliance uh, store called Parsons. You may remember Parsons. Yes, I remember. I, and uh, we, yeah. you know, occasionally we uh, deliver a washer, a dryer, a TV set uh, out that way. Yeah. And, and, it, and the, it was just. I always looked forward to going out there, especially in the fall, because it's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, with all the trees turning color. <laughs> yes. So, Lorna, what's on your mind this morning? <clears throat> well, I was listening to the. Um, I'm blind, so I listen to the radio a lot. And I was listening to um, this, uh, these beautiful creatures that are out there in the Congo. And, you know, it, it just struck me uh, very deeply and ancestrally <laughs> that we were here on Discovered too, living our lives as Native people. Yes. And uh, curiosity came along and I would just say destroyed us, but not quite, <laughs> because we still have our spiritual ceremonies and, and things like that, but according to the way that things went on the reserve and to our Native people, because of curiosity and because of other things, that we're not very, we're not very um, progressive, if you know what I mean. I know what you mean, Lorna, yeah. and, and so it, it sounds to me like it, that the story of the Mokeli and Bembe sort of struck a chord with you because here is this magnificent creature, fearsome to be sure, uh, mm -hmm. that's lived undisturbed and all of a sudden now human encroachment, it's threatened, it's striking back. Uh, and so you're drawing, a, I guess, a parallel to, to what happened to the uh, uh, Native North Americans before the onset of uh, European uh, uh, encroachment and so forth. Listen, Lorna, uh, yes. thank you for calling. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm so honored and privileged that... Uh, uh, that uh, I'm able to uh, to keep you uh, company in some part, and I, I look forward to hearing from you again. Okay, thank you very much. All right. Yeah. We'll get to uh, Andrew and Mississauga, Ken and Innisfil, when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You can also follow me on Twitter, Twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett, all one word, Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. -T. Back to the phones. Ken is in Innisfil and also wants to talk about smart meters. Hello, Ken. Good morning. Hello. Hi. Go ahead. You're on the air. Richard, um, can I be a little bit argumentative with you? Certainly. Because uh, first off, you know, uh, like, the, the the actual concept of 740, I mean, this has got to be my most favorite radio station in the world. Some of the music you people play for us, and even my 94-year-old mother, continue to listen to your station. We've been listening to it way back since George Genescu was playing his big band Saturday Night on you, and still does a little bit. Not enough as, we're, as far as we're concerned. But back to the smart meters, um, I can't believe that, that, that anybody would believe that a smart meter could come into your house and electronically affect you. Why not? Well, it just can't. Who says? Why? Well, God, I've got one. My 94-year-old mother has one in her house. We're not being affected. How do you know? Well, how do I know? Well, uh, 
they've been here a year now, and uh, my eating habits haven't improved or disapproved. Uh, I don't feel sick. Uh, everything's normal. Well, that I, I can. That's terrific news, and uh, and uh, I'm, I wish you and your 94 year old uh, mother continued wonderful health. But but but, but Ken, uh, but there's no way that a smart meter or anything like that would affect anybody. Well, I'll tell you why I think it can, Ken. And that, and then I was at uh, again. I mentioned Robert Metzinger, Safe Technologies, uh, out near Guelph, and um, he has. Uh, he, I mean, he has a smart meter on. Uh, an exterior wall adjacent to his uh, living room. Sure. He put up a meter there. He showed me uh, on the meter, uh, you know, when this thing is is uh, emitting, you know, every, I don't know how many seconds, it's about 6,000. There's a pulse. Yeah, about 6,000 every day. I and am it was, an electrician, sort yeah, of. It was, re- it was registering. And, uh, it, you know, not, not to the same effect as, let's say, when you put a meter up in front of a microwave. Now, a microwave is supposed to be like a, a Faraday cage, right? It's not supposed to escape, but those things leak. All right. Well, for uh, God's sakes, people stand in front of microwaves waiting for their cup of tea to get hot. I know, I know. <laughs> so, so Ken, you would, you, you know, you you admit that you have to be cautious around a microwave. Well, what I'm saying is, it's possible. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I mean, I, I uh, we had Dr. Magda have us on the, or uh, Magda have us on the program. I mean, this is her life's work, and she's very concerned uh, about things like. The smart meters and the microwaves and baby uh, baby monitors, which she says is like putting a cell phone tower next to your baby's head. Imagine, uh, and and you know, as a parent, and I had a baby monitor for our, our children. I'm I'm I feel sick to my stomach now. Now, you know, the, we, obviously we have a, a ways to go. We need to study this, but I'm hearing from people uh, who who say that since they've had a smart meter uh, put in, they're 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 feeling. Uh, they're feeling some effects. They can't necessarily put their finger on it. Some people may be more sensitive to it than others. Uh, some people are maybe uh, prone to this sort of thing. Uh, Ken, perhaps you and your mother uh, are, are not. But, you know, I say that we have to be very, very cautious um, but, about... But about... Aren't, you, aren't you sort of ringing the wrong end of the bell? I mean, it's like, you know, chicken little and the sky is falling. There are so many more electronical devices that are so much more dangerous. Well, and, uh, my, and, and the bottom line is, you're my 740 radio. I don't want you to start sounding like a weird radio, you know, like a like sort of making mountains out of molehills. Well, I don't think we're making uh, mountains out of uh, molehills, Ken. I think we're drawing attention to something that far few people uh, are doing, and uh, it, it's time that, it, that, uh, that we start to do that. And uh, we're going to do more shows on EMF, and we're going to do more shows on smart meters, and, and um, you know, that might not be your cup of tea, Ken, but I'm sorry. People want to know about this stuff, and if no one else is going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. Uh, Andrew in uh, Mississauga, I'm sorry we didn't get to your call. Others uh, waiting on the line patiently, thank you. Hope you'll check in with me next week. Dr. Hugh Ross will be here, the author of one of my favorite books, and that is Why the Universe is the Way It Is. Dr. Hugh, uh, I believe, studied at the University of Toronto. He's an astronomer and uh, really paints a wonderful picture. As when you look at the universe and the design, the precision... It all adds up. It makes perfect sense. The universe was created, and it was waiting for us. It was built for us. All right. In the meantime, thanks to Dan Ellison for production. 
Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I speak in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in a whisper proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.